Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties Podcast, where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today we'll be talking about Federalist 66. We often open these podcasts with three big ideas. Here are three big ideas concerning Federalist 66. Big Idea 1. In Federalist 66, Hamilton took up and disputed objections to the role of the Senate impeachment grounded in broad concerns about separation of powers. Big Idea 2. Hamilton also addressed and dismissed concerns that the power of trying impeachments would lend to the Senate an aristocratic character. Big Idea 3. Hamilton addressed concerns that the Senate would be biased in its duties in impeachment trials by its participation in the ratification of treaties or appointment of officials. Hamilton opened Federalist 66 by taking up what had become a familiar line of argument, the notion that separation of powers would serve as a potent objection the first of several cited in Federalist 66, to significant elements of the Constitution. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, The first of these objections is that the provision in question confounds legislative and judiciary authorities in the same body in violation of that important and well-established maxim which requires a separation between the different departments of power. The true meaning of this maxim has been discussed and ascertained in another place and has been shown to be entirely compatible with a partial intermixture of those departments for special purposes, preserving them, in the main, distinct and unconnected. This partial intermixture is even, in some cases, not only proper but necessary to the mutual defense of the several members of the government against each other." When Hamilton referred to other places where this argument had been examined, he was likely thinking, among other things, about the argument of Federalist 47. The claim there was that the concept of separation of powers among branches would be consistent with some sharing of powers among branches, and that such an understanding would be in line with Montesquieu's ideas about separation of powers. A further element of Hamilton's argument in this regard was his observation that the Constitution of the State of New York, the state in which the essays of the Federalist Papers were published, would be subject to similar objections. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, It is curious to observe with what vehemence this part of the plan is assailed on the principle here taken notice of by men who profess to admire, without exception, the constitution of this state, while that constitution makes the Senate, together with the chancellor and judges of the Supreme Court, not only a court of impeachments, but the highest judicatory in the state, in all causes, civil and criminal." Big Idea 2 reminds us of a standard mode of objection to elements of the constitution objection on the grounds that the Constitution would create powers resembling those of the aristocracies of Europe, or as Hamilton put it, quote, tending to give to the government a countenance too aristocratic, end quote. Hamilton dismissed this in part on grounds of vagueness, quoting Hamilton once again, quote, to an objection so little precise in itself, it is not easy to find a very precise answer. Where is the measure or criterion to which we can appeal for determining what will give the Senate too much, too little or barely the proper degree of influence." End quote. Apart from that, Hamilton reminded his readers of another theme familiar from the Federalist Papers, the idea that the real power in government would come not from the wealthy or important few, but rather from the popular branch of government. Quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, But this hypothesis, such as it is, has already been refuted in the remarks applied to the duration and office prescribed for the senators. It was by them shown, as well on the credit of historical examples as from the reason of the thing, 
that the most popular branch of every government, partaking of the Republican genius by being generally the favorite of the people, will be as generally a full match, if not an overmatch, for every other member of the government, end quote. If the fear was that the Senate would use impeachment trials to accomplish aristocratic goals, that fear, on Hamilton's account, should be mitigated by the recollection that the Senate may only try those impeached by the House of Representatives. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, The exclusive privilege of originating money bills will belong to the House of Representatives. The same House will possess the sole right of in instituting impeachments. Is not this a complete counterbalance to that of determining them? The same House will be the umpire in all elections of the President, which do not unite the suffrages of a majority of the whole number of electors, a case which it cannot be doubted will sometimes, if not frequently, happen. End quote. Big Idea 3 takes on a striking criticism. Should we not fear that the Senate in impeachment trials would be biased in their judgments by their role in the appointment of officials or the ratification of treaties? It is imagined that they would be too indulgent judges of the conduct of men in whose official creation they had participated." End quote. Hamilton reminded his readers that one might make a similar claim about many political offices, and he was satisfied that a sense of professional responsibility would generally outweigh such potential bias. Then, too, the Senate would not be the only party responsible for appointments. Quoting Hamilton here, quote, Though facts may not always correspond with this presumption, yet if it be in the main just, it must destroy the supposition that the Senate, who will merely sanction the choice of the executive, should feel a bias towards the objects of that choice, strong enough to blind them to the evidences of guilt so extraordinary as to have induced the representatives of the nation to become its accusers." End quote. A related point concerns trials in which the grounds for impeachment would concern misconduct relative to a treaty. If the Senate ratifies a treaty, would that not cause them to be partial in cases involving misconduct relative to the treaty? Quoting Hamilton here, quote, After having combined with the executive in betraying the interests of the nation in a ruinous treaty, what prospect, it is asked, would there be of their being made to suffer the punishment they would deserve when they were themselves to decide upon the accusation for the treachery of which they have been guilty? End quote. Hamilton observed that concerns about such misconduct were handled differently under the Constitution, quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, the security essentially intended by the Constitution against corruption and treachery in the formation of treaties is to be sought for in the numbers and characters of those who are to make them. The joint agency of the chief magistrate of the Union and of two-thirds of the members of a body selected by the collective wisdom of the legislatures of the several states is designed to be the pledge for the fidelity of the national councils in this particular." End quote. Hamilton compared the idea of punishing two-thirds of the Senate for a bad treaty with punishing a majority of the House of Representatives for a bad law, and offered in this vein a significant claim about the ways in which sanctions of office holders should be understood, quoting Hamilton here, quote, The truth is that in all such cases it is essential to the freedom and to the necessary independence of the deliberations of the body that the members of it should be exempt from punishment for acts done in a collective capacity and that the security to the society must depend on the care which is taken to confide the trust to proper hands, to make it their interest to execute it with fidelity, and to make it as difficult as possible for them to combine in any interest opposite to that of the public good." End quote. Notably, this explanation of the need to exempt from punishments members of a body acting in a collective official capacity seemed not to apply in the same way to the executive. 
quoting Hamilton on this point, quote, So far as might concern the misbehavior of the executive in perverting the instructions or contravening the views of the Senate, we need not be apprehensive of the want of a disposition in that body to punish the abuse of their confidence or to vindicate their own authority. We may thus far count upon their pride, if not upon their virtue. And so far even, as might concern the corruption of leading members, by whose arts and influence the majority may have been inveigled into measures odious to the community, if the proofs of that corruption should be satisfactory, the usual propensity of human nature will warrant us in concluding that there would be commonly no defect of inclination in the body to divert the public resentment from themselves by a ready sacrifice of the authors of their mismanagement and disgrace." End quote. We often close these podcasts with a comment on the relevance of the essay under review to politics in the present and the future. And in discussions of the Senate, we often think in terms of the most important change in the Constitution with reference to the Senate. The fact that senators are now popularly elected rather than being appointed by state legislatures. One might think that such a change would lead to senators being less differentiated from members of the House than in the past, just because the mode or selection of the members of the two houses is the same or as it was once not the same. And one thing to look to that has not changed is the length of term, two years in the House, six in the Senate. Much of what we have seen in the Federalist Papers suggests that duration in office leads to benefits in terms of the acquisition of knowledge and understanding of the practice of politics. And perhaps because of the need to consider and respond to the charge that the Constitution would aggrandize aristocratic powers and foster aristocratic attitudes in office holders. There seems to be less emphasis in Federalist 66 on significant differences between the House of Representatives and the Senate beyond the powers outlined in the Constitution. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit our website at sunwater.org.